So this is lesson six of the study of Galatians. <laughs> and the problem in Galatia is there are Jewish brothers and probably some proselytes as well telling these new Galatian followers of Messiah that they must be circumcised and be required to obey the Torah as a Jewish person by living according to the traditions of the fathers in the same way a Jewish person living in the land would live out Torah. And Paul, though he used to be of the same opinion, now, of course, disagrees with this vehemently. And we're about to find out why and how this Pharisee came to reverse his position. And in the last week, we, we, we talked about part of what we need to talk about today. Verse 13 says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism and how intensely I persecuted the church and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And we spoke of when Paul says Judaism, he's not bringing forth the idea of a new religion called Christianity versus an old religion called Judaism. At that time, there was no Christianity as we think of Christianity. But there was a form of Judaism called Messianic Judaism. Messianic because they believed that Yeshua was the Messiah. And that's why in Scripture it's called a sect. A sect of what? A sect of Judaism. When Paul says he was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age, he's saying he was advancing in another sect of Judaism. Pharisaic Judaism. The Pharisees were a sect of Judaism that lived by a specific set of laws and rules developed by the sages and the rabbis. And we know that's what he meant because of his words to us in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. He says, If anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul was a Pharisee. And what separated the sect of Pharisees from, say, the sect of Sadducees were two things. First, the Pharisees believed that there was a resurrection. And we can see that Paul was a Pharisee because he's standing before the Sanhedrin at a trial in Acts chapter 23, verse 6. And he says, Then Paul, knowing some of them were Sadducees and others were Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee the son of a Pharisee, and I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection. He says, I am a Pharisee. Not I was a Pharisee. I am a Pharisee. And he's standing before the Sanhedrin, which is made up of both Sadducees and Pharisees, and he's appealing to the other Pharisees who are sitting on the Sanhedrin. See, in effect here, he's dividing the Sanhedrin along their theological lines. He's saying that the Sadducees have put him on trial for his belief in the resurrection. So in essence, he's saying he's on trial for being a Pharisee. So that would immediately gain him the support of all the other Pharisees sitting on the Sanhedrin. The other thing that separates the Sadducees from the Pharisees is also stated above. He said, I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father's. The Pharisees lived by the traditions of the fathers and the Sadducees, on the other hand, took a very literal view of the Torah. 
the traditions of the fathers are likened to a fence around the Torah. In other words, additional laws that would keep you from violating a Torah command itself. And that's why the very first tract of the Mishnah, or the oral law, it's called Perkeavot, says this, Moses received the Torah from God at Mount Sinai and conveyed it to Joshua, Joshua to the elders, the elders to the prophets, the prophets to the men of the great assembly, and they said three things. May be deliberate in judgment, develop many disciples, and make a protective fence around the Torah. You see, the Pharisees actually believed that the Torah, the written Torah, was incomplete without the further explanation that was given by the fathers of Judaism or the sages. On the other hand, if you look at the Essenes, the Qumran sect, we would find that they felt the Pharisees were all wrong as well and they followed their own traditions. Paul will later in this letter refer to the traditions of the Pharisees as works of the law. But that's for another day. But let's get an idea of these traditions, these traditions of the Pharisees. The Greek word used for this is paradosis. And it's, it says this, of the body of precepts, especially ritual, which in the opinion of latter Jews were orally delivered by Moses and orally transmitted in an unbroken succession to subsequent generations, which precepts, both illustrating and expanding on the written law, as they did, were to be, be obeyed with equal reverence. Notice that it says that they had the belief that these were orally transmitted by Moses in an unbroken succession. The Pharisees actually felt that and taught that Moses not only wrote, that Moses really only wrote down part of the Torah, the commands of God. But the method for keeping those commands was orally transmitted. God gave them first to Moses, then Moses gave those instructions to Joshua orally, and they were transmitted orally onward to the sages and to their disciples. And this is the authority on which the Pharisees stand. That these traditions that they follow as far as keeping the Torah were given by God just as the written Torah. The Pharisees and the Orthodox Jews of today believe that these traditions regarding keeping the Torah were actually given to Moses by God himself and that they were actually more important than the written Torah itself. There's a tradition that says, let the Gentiles have the written Torah, but don't give them the oral Torah. You see, it's the oral Torah that defines Pharisaic Judaism, who they are. Let's look at a, a few things so that you might better understand, because I know this is Greek to a lot of people, or maybe Hebrew to a lot of people. But let's look at a couple things. Let's look at a few. Exodus chapter 34, verse 26 says, Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. God commanded that the Israelites do not boil a kid in its own mother's milk. Now most feel, and I feel, that God gave this command because of the custom of the pagans to cook an animal in its mother's milk as an offering to their gods. And so here God says, when you bring the first fruits of your offering to me, cook it as I instructed, roasted over the fire. Do not bring it and boil it in its mother's milk as the pagans do. Now there's another place where this same command occurs and it's in Deuteronomy chapter 14 and it doesn't occur this time in, in context of the offerings. It says, Do not eat anything you already find dead. You may give it to an alien in any of your towns and he may eat it 
or you may sell it to a foreigner, but you are a people holy to your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And so here it is, the command given outside of the context of the offerings. Now, as you might imagine, if you're a Torah literalist, as I am, this is a very easy command to keep. I'm not going to boil a kid or a calf or anything else in its own mother's milk. But let's see what the traditions of the fathers have done to this relatively simple command. And I want to read from the Aramaic Targum, the Aramaic translation of this. And if you're new to the Aramaic translation, the rabbis took much liberty when they translated it to try and convey the meaning of the text to the people. <clears throat> so the Targum on Deuteronomy chapter 14, 21 says this way, My people, children of Israel, you shall not cook and you shall not eat flesh and milk mixed together. You see, they revised it to not eating meat and milk together at all. So you can't eat a piece of meat with a piece of cheese or a glass of milk. And later they take it farther to say you can't even a chicken and milk together. Now, I don't know how you can boil a chicken in its mother's milk, but... <laughs> Not only that, we just returned from Israel, as you all know, or most of you know. And we went to a restaurant there, and they have a meat side and a meat kitchen. And then they have a dairy side and a dairy kitchen. Never the two shall meet. So if your wife wants fettuccine Alfredo and you want a nice steak, you'll not be eating dinner together, but you can smile at each other from across the room. <laughs> across this divider. All right? So that's one. Let's look at another. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law came to Yeshua from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders and do not wash their hands before they eat? Now the Torah says nothing about this ceremonial washing of hands. There's no command that says, Thou shall not eat until you ceremonially wash your hands. And understand, this is not a washing for germs. But it's a special ceremonial washing of your hands with water only, similar to the waters of immersion. And so where do they come up with this expansion of the law? Well, they look at Exodus chapter 30, and it says, verse 17, The Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with the water from it, before they enter into the holy place. The sages took the position that not just the priests, but every Jew should be washing their hands before various tasks. And so in the times of the temple, eating, of course, as we saw in the story of Yeshua, but also handling the tithe, the offerings, other things as well. And so a law for the priests alone becomes a law imposed on all of the people of Israel. Finally, let's look at one more. It happens in Exodus chapter 12, verse 48 and 49. An alien, this is going to be very important to the book of Galatians. An alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat of it. The same law applies to the native born and to the alien living among you. 
So this is a passage, and this passage is, and only one other, where God tells Abraham to circumcise all the males in his household to include servants, are the only two passages in the Torah that refer to a non-Jew being circumcised. And it's only for a non-Jew living in the land who wants to keep the Lord's Passover. If you were a non-Jew and you wanted to eat the Passover lamb itself, the lamb itself, then you would have to be circumcised along with everyone else in your family, every other male in your family. Now let me ask you this. If you're living in Galatia, would you be able to eat the Passover lamb? Of course not. Because the only place you could have a Passover lamb was Jerusalem. The lamb had to be eaten before midnight on the 15th of Nisan. In other words, you had about nine hours to kill, cook, and eat the lamb. The rest of it had to be destroyed. So there were no leftovers going out to Galatia. Right? So living in Galatia or Rome or anywhere in the diaspora, you never went to the temple to offer a Passover lamb. So did you need to be circumcised? No, you would not. So if I'm a Torah literalist, the only two reasons for a non-Jew to be circumcised are if he's a servant in the house of Abraham, which is no longer possible, or if I want to have a Passover, eat of the Passover lamb. Those are the only two reasons. However, the rabbis expanded on this and the purity laws to say that non-Jews who wanted to be members of the community of Jewish people anywhere in the world had to be circumcised whether or not they wanted to or even could keep the Passover. And they did this with many of the traditions, taking the requirements of the temple commands for the priests and the requirements of the Jewish people living in the Lamb and made them all necessary for all people all of the time. So understand, when Paul comes against circumcision, he's not abolishing Torah, but he's actually upholding the Torah. He's upholding it because the rabbis added to the Torah and by doing so, we're requiring non-Jews to do what God never required them to do. If a non-Jew agreed to do go through this conversion process, as Paul will later state, he became responsible for the whole of the Torah, the written and the oral, because he made a vow to the Lord to do so. All of this is part of the oral Torah. And as Paul puts it, the traditions of the fathers. Yeshua didn't agree with many of these traditions. He comes against many things like washing hands. He comes against certain restrictions of the rabbis placed on the Sabbath day. And by doing so, Yeshua's not abolishing the Torah either, as the church fathers often preached, but he's actually upholding the commands of God, correcting the understanding of the commands of God. Unfortunately, when Christian pastors and Christians read Paul's letters, they think he's abolishing the Torah command of circumcision when in fact there is no command for non-Jews living outside the land of Israel to be circumcised. When Christians read the words of Yeshua, they think he's abolishing the command for hand-washing when there is no command for hand-washing. Or they think he's abolishing the Sabbath when in fact he's only in conflict with the Pharisees' expansion on the purity laws and the laws for the Sabbath day. So it's these things that Paul at one time was extremely zealous for. These expansions on the Torah, as you can imagine, kept the gospel from going forth to the nations. And so what, so what changed Paul's mind? 
Let's read verse 15 we'll find out. But when God, who set me apart from birth, called me by grace and was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not consult with any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately to Arabia and later to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him for 15 days. So Paul says that he was zealous for the traditions of the fathers, and then in contrast to that, because he says, but, but is the key word there, contrasting what follows with the traditions of the fathers. And what is it that stands in contrast to the traditions of the fathers? Messiah revealed in him. And because Messiah is in him, he didn't have to consult with any man. He didn't even have to go up and consult with the disciples in Jerusalem. No one. Why? Because he had Messiah within him. So who else did he need to consult with? If he wants to know the truth, where else are you going to get the truth? Right? Am I right? Amen. The halakha of the fathers, the traditions of the fathers have been replaced by Messiah within him. Does that mean he went against all the traditions of the fathers and totally rejected everything that he had learned? Of course not. If he had, he would never have been able to say, I am a Pharisee. But neither did Yeshua throughout all of the traditions of the father either. Paul takes three years before he goes up and he meets Peter. Three years. Doesn't that strike you? Three years? How long did the disciples study under Yeshua? Three years. And I'm sure that, that, that there's more than just a coincidence here. So what is it? What is this Messiah within him that he no longer needed to consult with men? What was it? Well, whenever I go to Jerusalem, since I was just there, I'm going to throw this in. Whenever I go to Jerusalem, I always take the tour to this traditional house of Caiaphas on the tour. And I put it there because it's a traditional site for this. Matthew chapter 26, verse, 20, for f- verse 57 and 58. Those who had arrested Yeshua took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. Peter followed at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest, entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. So... What they're telling us is that this place we went is the traditional site that Yeshua tried, was tried and imprisoned until he was brought before Pilate the next day, the next morning. And I say traditional because while all stories of the Bible are true, some of them even happened in the sites where they take you. (laughs) But here's the thing, correct or not, it's really a great site because I think it's very accurate to where Yeshua would have been taken. And it's, it's going to show us something about Yeshua and about what he did for Paul and all of us. You see, this is an 18-room house, which is unheard of in Jerusalem. And it's at a very sub-level. Even from the food and wine storage, there's this one lone little room in this very sub-level. A small room, about seven feet by seven feet. And it's hewn out of solid bedrock. It's the traditional room where Yeshua was imprisoned. 
And even if it's not the very spot he was kept, I'm sure it was very much like the very spot he was kept. No windows. It's dark. It's cold. And it's hard. Stone. And the thing I want you to see is that this is where Yeshua spent the last, some of the last hours of his life. Think about Yeshua. Everywhere he went, he was surrounded by crowds. Crowds followed him. Not only that, if they heard he was coming, they were waiting for him. Those, those with sicknesses and disease were waiting for him just to touch the hem of his robe. In fact, we read this in Scripture. Luke chapter 5, verse 12 says, While Yeshua was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Yeshua, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Yeshua reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and Yeshua ordered him, Don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Yeshua often withdrew to lonely places to pray. You see, Yeshua had a serious problem. He was so popular that he had a hard time even to find a place to pray. He had to sneak away. But not on this day. On this day, he's alone. He's alone in a pit waiting for the death that he knows awaits him. Well, anyway, as you're down in this pit, and I tried to get the whole tour to go down there. They didn't, most of them didn't go down there, but I went down there because I always like to go down there. But anyway, you're down in this pit, and it may be even the same one Yeshua was in, but it was certainly like the one Yeshua was in. And so you... You try to imagine what it was like for Yeshua and Psalm 88 goes through your mind. And I'm sure it was going through Yeshua's mind. So we're going to read this today. Let's read it. Imagine yourself in a pit, chained, waiting for your execution the next day. O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of trouble and my life draws near the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like a man without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with your waves. On this day, Yeshua, who helped so many who turned no one away, who throughout his ministry had to slip away to pray, was alone. The separation from God that we through our sins should have deserved has separated him. And the wrath of God for our sins is being placed upon him. Let's read a little bit farther. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, O Lord, every day. I spread up my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? 
Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Are your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, O Lord. And in the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, do you reject me? Do you hide your face from me? From my youth I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me all day long. Surrounded like a flood, I have become, they have engulfed me. They have completely engulfed me. And you have taken my companions and my loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. He's alone. He's separated from God. And he did, he spent these hours alone so that you and I and Paul would never have to spend any time alone again. Paul found the Messiah in him and found that he was his constant companion. And it so changed him. Remember what we read in Philippians? Let's read it again. If anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness faultless, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Messiah. And what is more, I consider everything loss to the surpassing greatness of knowing Yeshua, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Messiah and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but through faith in Messiah. The righteousness that comes from God is by faith. All the things that he did to draw close to God all of his life, all the traditions of the fathers, the daily prayers prescribed by the fathers, all the trappings of men, he considered them rubbish. Because he now knew the king. And not just did he know him, but he actually abided in him. Paul will never know the aloneness that Yeshua felt that day because Yeshua already suffered it for him. Paul, as he awaits in prison, will never be alone because Yeshua was alone for him. Paul will never be the same. He now has a constant companion. We know that he had this relationship because after three years he goes up to Jerusalem to see Peter and the other disciples and guess what? They're all on the same page as far as the gospel is concerned. They're all on the same page as far as the good news is concerned without ever having spoken to one another. Paul, having consulted with no man, had learned what he knew from the Messiah the same way the other disciples had. If he had consulted with men, we might not be reading this letter. If he had lost connection with Messiah, we might not be reading this letter, but Paul considered all those former things rubbish because he now had Messiah in him, his constant companion and friend. And you know why? Now you know why he used Abraham as his model. We talked about it this morning. He used Abraham as his model of what Yeshua has secured for us and why He calls those who know Messiah the children of Abraham. 
Abraham never consulted with men either. Abraham didn't follow the traditions of Terah. Abraham had relationship with God. So did Isaac. So did Jacob. In fact, all the great men of the Bible had one thing in common. They separated themselves from men and the things of men and their traditions and became friends of God. And guess what? It's available to everyone. Now, because Yeshua spent those hours alone, because He all alone hung on a tree, because He all alone went down into the grave, and because of that, you'll never walk alone. We have a guide. The question is, are we going to follow the guide or are we going to follow men? Will we be like Paul and walk with Messiah? Will we follow the church fathers and their customs, saying their prayers? Or will we follow the rabbis and their customs, saying and their traditions, saying their prayers? And will we end up all alone because of it? Or will we follow Messiah Yeshua and never walk alone? Will we be like Paul and not speak to God through rope prayers? But will we be like Paul and speak to Yeshua as our friend and as our brother? As did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, Paul chose Messiah Yeshua, and I think he made the right decision, so I'm going to follow the same decision.